welcome to the Group Home Riches Podcast. If you have the desire to be your own boss, create your own schedule, and become financially free while at the same time helping people in need, then you've come to the right place. At GroupHomeRiches.com, we teach people exactly like yourself how to get started in the group home business, and on this podcast, you're going to hear their stories firsthand. All right, folks, it's been on my to-do list for a very long time. One of the most common questions that we get almost every single day, multiple times is, hey, I want to start a group home in blank city and state. Is it legal? You know, what type of license do I need to get? You know, so-and-so told me that I need to get this license and this certification and yada, yada, yada. And it's, we hammer it in our content. We always reply back pretty much with the same response. You need to follow the same rules and regulations that any other housing provider needs to follow. And on top of that, you're often going to be serving people who are under a protected class under uh, federal fair housing laws. So we are not lawyers and he's not a lawyer. We're familiar with the law, which is why we brought on today's guest, LaTanya, who is very familiar with the law. So LaTanya, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Brandon. So before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, why don't you just give everybody an introduction on your background and also, you know, let them know why you came to us because I found you in the private Facebook group. Yeah, absolutely. So like you mentioned, my name is LaTanya Moore. I'm actually a former federal regulatory attorney. I worked my very first job, believe it or not, out of law school was working for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development in the Fair Housing Division in the New York, New Jersey region. So that's one of the <laughs> one of the busiest areas, you know, at least at the time working there. And so since then, I have actually left the government. I've been out on my own for about seven years. I do represent real estate investors. I represent other business owners that kind of do this work. And I'm very excited to be here. You and I met because now in my new transition life, I've represented companies for a while. And now I am actually, hopefully in the next couple of weeks, going to open my own group home. So that's how you and I came to know each other. Yeah. And we'll we'll help you with that. We'll have you rocking and rolling. (laughs) So just kind of, you heard me mention the federal fair housing stuff. Why don't you just give an overview on just, you know, what, what I'm talking about? What are all the federal laws that potential group homeowners are protected by, like uh, fair housing and how do they apply to what we call group homes? Yeah, essentially what the Fair Housing Act says is that, you know, you cannot discriminate against people that either are or associated with people that are members of a protected class. And so those are things like race, religion, sex, and under the Fair Housing Act, also family status, disability, these are all protected classes under the law. And so specifically for group homes, typically where we've seen it is that there's been a lot of pushback, especially for people that are doing group homes for the disabled. And so <laughs> let's just say that there are lots of ways that this shows up. Some of it is direct, where you have direct harassment, for example, from neighbors, because that's also a challenge. And you can also file a fair housing complaint against a neighbor, believe it or not. You can also file against a homeowners association. Oftentimes people don't know that 
they can file a claim if they, for example, they want to put a group home in a HOA covered facility or housing, they can file a complaint. But again, the limit there, though, is if there is what a lot of times they talk about, if this particular group poses a threat, you know, to the community. And of course, the government has dealt with that to say, well, you know, are we talking about something that's objective? Are we talking about something that that is subjective, right? Just because there may be a history of something with a certain person or a certain type of let's just say a disability, right? Someone with schizophrenia, I'll use that as an example. And so you find out that, you know, this particular house is going to be marketed to that type of individual to live in this home. Now there may be a concern in the neighborhood that, you know, these people may, you know, I don't know, break out of the house and and kill everybody in the neighborhood because sometimes people think like that, but that is not enough. It's not enough. It has to be an individualized assessment And the threat has to be something that would be immediate. And so how can you show that? It's very difficult to show. But oftentimes people will back down when, you know, code enforcement comes or, I don't know, the neighborhood watch, you know, or someone like that. They will just make a pivot or a shift and say either, well, I won't do my group home or I'm going to do something else. All quiz people, most people don't even get to the point of running into those. I'll ask people I'll describe a neighborhood. Hey, it's a brand new neighborhood, you know, new, new homes, a lot of families, children riding their bikes around. Do you think you could legally start a a sober living home in that neighborhood? And they'll immediately, you know, you can't do that there. The neighbors won't allow it. (laughs) And I get it. I get the perspective from the neighbors, but why I wanted to have you on was just kind of explain why you know, the neighbors could feel a type of way about it, but they don't have a legal case typically. Yeah, typically. Now, sober living is a little bit different from, let's say, a disabled group home. The thing that you have to understand about the Fair Housing Act, it has to fit into one of those protected classes for it to be covered. And so in a lot of places, alcoholism can be considered a disabling condition if there's something connected to it. So like, for example, if, you know, you have been an alcoholic and now it's deteriorated, you know, I don't know your brain or your health to a certain extent that you're now considered disabled just because it's sober living, you still may have some disabled individuals there. That's the thing about the Fair Housing Act that you have to kind of understand when you are talking about something like addiction, something like sober living, because, you know, you have to make sure that it fits into one of those protected classes. Right. My understanding was that people who are, you know, alcoholism and drug addiction is considered a disability. The 1988 version, I believe. But I guess there's some gray area there. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, for example, if you get your sober living folks, let's just say from a rehab facility. Uh huh then you have a leg to stand on because there's a documented history of this versus just let's just say a church that really doesn't do anything. (laughs) You know, it's one thing to have an addiction to alcohol. It's one thing to be drunk for the night. So that's why I was saying, if you're going to have a sober living facility, you need to make sure that you're getting your referrals from a reputable source. So let's go worst case then. Let me use that as the example. Let's say 
it's advertised as sober living, or let's just say it's cooperative living, a cooperative, affordable housing, and the people, let's just not even classify it. <laughs> if the neighbors don't want that type of house in their neighborhood, what can they do to shut it down? Like we're just worst case scenario. Well, it should be very difficult for them to be able to do it because now you're only looking at things like, usually they'll try to use code enforcement. You know, like we discussed, they'll usually try to use code enforcement. As long as you are within those, you know, whether it's the square footage or whether it's the, you know, so many people per bedroom, as long as everything is in compliance, they really truly don't have a leg to stand on. Oftentimes they think that they do, but then you have to be prepared to take further recourse. So like if you start a, a veteran housing, just cooperative living, the neighbors could complain or I didn't even know that you could have a case against the HOA. So I'm, I'm going to learn a lot here too. <laughs> but yeah, the neighbors, it's going to be a tough case for them to say, hey, we don't want a house full of veterans in our neighborhood. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, typically, let's just be honest. <laughs> typically, some of the folks in that house are going to be disabled because usually if they're not, they're not going to be co-living for the yep. most part. They're going to mm-hmm. fit into some of those. And here's the thing. There's also something under the law called regarded as, regarded as disabled. So that could mean if someone says, well, I think that, you know, it's a bunch of veterans in there and, you know, and I think that they're crazy. They've made a determination that these people are quote unquote crazy, which under the law is a mental disability. That's how it is characterized. And so therefore, because they think that, They are responding in a way as if these people are that. And so this is now the reason that they're acting that way, because if they didn't think that we wouldn't have this problem. So there's a lot of nuances. (laughs) There's a lot of nuances to it. But again, a lot of times action is taken and no one does anything. And so if no one is doing anything, you know, they're just going to keep doing that. Yeah. And that's I think the lack of action is just the lack of education which is what we try to do, <laughs> but mm-hmm. you're, you're going to be the expert on that. So that's why I'm so glad you're here with us. <laughs> so we talked about like the fair housing, which was put there to protect these people with disabilities that were getting discriminated against. That's why they put these laws into place. And now we're on the flip side. We're talking about people that they're not discriminating against these folks. They're actually actively seeking to help people with disabilities and now they have to deal with like discrimination by the neighbors or like a code compliance officer or something like that. So just kind of a overall crazy situation, but we touched on the fair housing act. We have a ton of material in that, in the gold course and and on our blog as well. If people want to read more about that and read about cases where group homes have won cases arguing that let's touch on, other like, you know, laws and guidelines out there that could protect a group home. So for example, you brought up the square footage and the occupancy law. So let's touch on that for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So that sort of ties in with section 504 of the rehab, which is basically the Disabilities Act. It's part of the the, um, Disabilities Act, which of course is ADA. So whenever you hear like ADA compliance, the, the typical occupancy requirements that that we tend to see, like I said, and it could be different. So you got to make sure you check it for 
the municipality that you're in, but typically it's two people, two adults, let me say that, two adults per bedroom, but there's also a square footage requirement. And so some places I've seen actually 60 square feet for every one individual, but I've also seen 70 for every one individual. So what does that mean? That means if you have a larger room, now you can get more people. So that's really what you want to know. You want to know the square footage of the sleeping rooms, because that's going to tell you how many people you can put in that room and still be in compliance. Now, there's another limitation as well that we've seen is uh, typically they will say six people per bathroom. So that's also a limitation as well. Now, if you have a let me say the way we have suggested it be interpreted, if you have a three bedroom, one and one half bath, you can have more than six people because you have more than one bathroom. That hasn't been challenged. <laughs> so we'll see. I'm not telling anybody necessarily to do it. But what I am saying is that you need to make sure that you know what the rules are in your area, because you, you have to be able to basically, if you say, okay, they've challenged us because I have a home full of disabled folks. This is why they don't want us to do this. Or this is why they're trying to shut us down. They then have to come back and say, no, 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 it's not that. It's because they are not in compliance with, you know, I don't know, code enforcement. And then let's say that code enforcement says what I said, and you really are in compliance because that's what you want to be. You really are in compliance. Then the question is, what was your real motivation? That's the question they have to answer to HUD. What was your real motivation if now we have determined that they are in compliance? And so that's very difficult when you're following their rules and now they're coming and they're saying, you know, they're saying something else. So it's just to kind of recap something. And again, this is just like a standard kind of local zoning thing is two, six people per bathroom. Mm -hmm. And that's not like a federal guideline, but it's just like a local, like a local thing that you see as common. That sounds reasonable to me. <laughs> so, but in theory, I guess you, you're saying that that could be challenged. It just no one has. Because bathroom, the way that we've seen it, the point that I'm trying to make is that the way that we've seen it, it did not say full bath. So that was the point I was trying to make. Well, if you have a one and one half bath, oh, theoretically, you. you really could have more than six people. Because remember, when you're talking about the square footage of a room, you could very well have a room, a, a master, right? That's big enough to even fit four people in, in a large master. So if you have four people in one room, two in another, two in another, that's more than six people. <laughs> that's eight people. And so the, you know, in a three bedroom, one and a half bath. So that's just something to think about, which is why you have to actually look and see. But the ones that we've looked at and have challenged have not said full bath. It just said bathroom. Okay. So you have challenged these. Excellent. Where I'm seeing like some issues is, you know, not per the bathroom, but I've seen some local jurisdictions say they put just blanket occupancy limits. Like they'll just pull a number out of a hat. So the example I gave you was in in Tempe, Arizona. They say you can't have more than three unrelated occupants in a house. So it doesn't matter if it's like a six bedroom house, they want to limit three adults per house, you know, 
are there any laws like federal laws under the books that they could use to challenge that? And what are your thoughts on those types of local laws? Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe that they really could use the Fair Housing Act to challenge that. Again, because if you can show that more than three people can safely coexist in a space, then why not? Because here's the thing, what you're saying is unrelated individuals versus related individuals, because that's what I'm understanding that you're saying. You could have 20 in there as long as they're related. Yeah. So the question then becomes, what is your real motive? What is your real motive for saying unrelated individuals can't live together, but related individuals can live together? Same square footage. Everything is equal. You know, all things being equal. It's a safe environment. It isn't a slum. It's not, you know, overrun with with people or anything like that. They fit within the general occupancy requirement outside of the fact that they are not related. I would encourage people to really consider challenging that, especially if it is preventing you from being able to move forward, you know, with your business venture. 100%. (laughs) I don't think they have a history of like shutting down group homes or anything like that. In Tempe, I know it's a college town. They're probably, you know, probably doing its cut back on like parties and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's just what the only reason I can think of. But, you know, they it seems like they throw stuff in the local zoning laws and things like that, that we found in Austin, Texas, for example, they conflict right in the local zoning. They have like two things that conflict within itself (laughs) and they and they slap stuff in there that to me seems like a clear violation of the federal guidelines so it's the stuff's tough to enforce i don't think there's a lot of history of it but this is the type of stuff that our new members are you know they're they're going down the rabbit hole they're looking this stuff up and they may be in a city like tempe like oh this isn't going to work in tempe i can only have three adults so we really want to get like the laws out here that are on your guys' side. So it's not going to hold you back from helping out like the massive problem in your community and, Mm -hmm. you know, starting your business. Right. So there was a recent post in the Facebook group from a gentleman, I believe it was in Massachusetts code compliance just came by, slapped a $200 fine on his door for not having a license. Mm Mm-hmm. What do you think about or, you know, what laws are on the books about that? Can a local jurisdiction require somebody to get a specific license just because of the type of people they're providing housing for? It really depends if they're also providing services or if they are dealing with a certain type of individual that does require you to have a license. But let's just say that's not it. Let's just say that this is just the regular. This is the housing part. Mm -hmm. All they're providing is housing. Again, what is the, because here's the thing, what is the basis for saying, because here's my thought, right? You don't know if it's a group home or if it's just a whole bunch of people living together. Yeah. So I would like to know more. I would like to know more about that. But let's just say we know more and we know that it is because it's a group home. The people in the group home are disabled. Let's just say, and we're just going to throw a protected class in there but they're only providing housing, right? They're not providing services. They're only providing housing. Then I would suggest that that person certainly see about filing a complaint. Now, here's the thing, cost benefit analysis, right? 
you could pay the fine. Like it may be cheaper for you to, you know, go that route. I doubt it in this case because they're telling that person that they have to be licensed and all of that, which essentially sounds to me like they're saying we're going to shut you down. Right. We're going to actually shut you down. And so I would suggest that they act fast, respond, you know, to it with all the proper citations. Some of the things that we talked about today, make sure that they understand what section of the code are they saying have been violated so that they can then come back and say this does not violate the code or the code now is in conflict with federal law. In 2016, there was a joint memo that came out. It was a memo with uh, HUD and the DOJ. And it literally was to help municipalities be in compliance with fair housing. This was in 2016. And I'll share with you, Brandon, I'll send you the link so that that's something you can add. Yeah, I was just um, making a note to look it up. So that would be great. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's literally out there. It's, it was 2016, there was a joint memorandum because there was a lot of this stuff happening. And here's the thing, affordable housing has a stigma. And even worse stigma is Groupon. When people hear the word Groupon, in my own personal journey, you know, I've had landlords say, oh, Latanya, no. <laughs> oh, my gosh, don't do that, right? I, yeah, no, I'm sorry, right? They don't want a group home in their home. Now, I know, like, technically, I could sue them, right? Let me pause I, you I, there. I, Let <laughs> me pause you there. I didn't know that. <laughs> so... <laughs> So we got a shark on our hands, folks. So <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, here's the thing, right? Okay. So let's talk about one of the things I know that you guys teach is about like being honest with the landlord because you have to so that you can operate the way you need to operate. Yeah. So they're going to have a lot of questions. You're, you're forthcoming. Like, hey, this is what I'm going to do here. And they're like, oh, oh, yeah. Okay. That's not what I thought. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think it's going. Yeah. 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 No. Right. They don't want to do it. Now, of course, that's before we get to everything else. Now, of course, there are ways that you, you know, that you talk to them. But realistically, a lot of these people have emotional attachments to these homes. Right. They may have just moved and decided to keep this as a rental property. So it was their home. So lots of things. And you can try to sweeten the pot. But there are some people that are just going to say absolutely not. Like, again, my experience with someone said, you know, what would the neighbors think? <laughs> right. Like, mm -hmm. well, do you care. I mean, do you care? You're going to get paid. Uh, we're going to make sure that your that your property is well taken care of. You don't even have to do walkthroughs because we're going to do it like all of those things. Nothing worked. And so you are going to run into those those situations. And, you know, quite frankly, you you really could. You really could. I'm not I can't say, you know, whether you would prevail. Right. Because a lot about what happens at these agencies really comes down to who's in power. But let's just say, could you do that? Yes. Especially if now you have a loss because now you have to rent at a higher level. It would be just as if. So, you know, for people that may not know, so I'm a you know, I'm a black woman. That would be just as if someone said, oh, I didn't know you were black. I'm not going to rent to you. It's the exact same thing. Or, you know, I didn't know like it's, it's you and, you know, a bunch of black kids, you know, that you're bringing. Right. And that sound that may sound harsh, but it's really the reality of what they're in essence. <laughs> they were just like saying to me. Right. Like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're OK, but not those people that you're going to put in my property. 
it's essentially the same thing. And I don't think that would be acceptable to anybody. Nice. So if you guys want to use that as a tool in your negotiations, have at it. <laughs> like I said, I'm going to be learning a lot here too. So we covered the fair housing, the occupancy stuff. We talked about the Fair Housing Act. Like, What other laws are out there that a group homeowner could use as kind of like extra protection for themselves and, and their occupants? Yeah, absolutely. So if you're dealing with anyone with disabilities, you can look at Section 504 of the Rehab Act. I think that act was like in 1973. It was before I was born. Uh, <laughs> if you are dealing with seniors, you definitely want to look at the Age Discrimination Act as well. Under the ADA or the American with Disabilities Act, in addition to Section 504, there's something called Title II. Now, Title II is broad, but there are some things that you might want to, I wouldn't suggest pulling it and reading it. I would definitely suggest finding some articles where there's been some really great discussion around it. Also, look for the most recent article that you can find because there's been some changes because of case law and case interpretation. Also, the Violence Against Women's Act, that was around 2005. VAWA is probably going to be the easiest way to look it up. So that's something you may want to think about, especially if you are dealing with victims of domestic violence and this is your demographic, you definitely want to think about those, you know, again, your applicable state laws, because a lot of times your state law will also have some support, even though, you know, there's a local ordinance, it should not be more restrictive than state or federal law, which is why all of these laws are subject to federal law. But you still want to make sure that you understand if there's any type of legislation that you have that's protecting like individual rights, of tenants or even landlords, applicants, even staff. For those of you that are also dealing with uh, persons with physical disabilities, you also want to make sure that you understand whatever the architectural standards are, especially if you're renting a property. If it's your own property, it will be fine. Now, if you're renting a property, there are some things that you can do. I don't suggest it, so I'm not going <laughs> to mention those. But you want to make sure that physically the person, if they have a wheelchair, that they can actually utilize the property without any additional assistance. Because if you don't do that, you may be, you know, on the receiving end of your own fair housing complaint. So there we go, folks. So on top of just the federal guidelines regarding occupancy, which is kind of a, a rule of thumb, we say as long as like a, an average sized home, the homes aren't going to, the bedrooms aren't going to look really small. You know, you could break out the, the tape measure if you want, but in general, two adults per bedroom are considered reasonable. That's pretty safe to say, right? Let's Latanya. Oh yeah, absolutely. So two people per bedroom and in some cases more. Okay. But two's the minimum on top of that. A lot of the people that are looking for this type of housing are going to fall under some type of classification of a protected class. And Latanya just broke down a, like a, a ton of examples of that. So in addition to the general you know, occupancy laws that are on your side, you have these additional protections because of the tenants that you are providing housing for. This is just my personal opinion and what 
I've suggested to some folks in the group and some of my coaching clients. Latanya, I forgot to ask, where are you located? I'm in Houston, Texas. Okay, that's right. That's right. So I'm in Texas too, Central Texas. You know, every time I drive through Austin, it's probably similar in Houston. It's the same problem in LA. Across the country, affordable housing is a massive issue. So are you noticing like the homeless population kind of boom in Houston? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And it appears to be getting worse. Yeah. Every time I drive through Austin, a couple times per year, it seems like that population doubles year over year. And I'm not exaggerating. It seems like they double. (laughs) So the folks listening to this, you know, that, that have found us, they're at least curious about solving this problem. It's a massive problem. There's not a lot of landlords, as Latanya, you just mentioned, not a lot of landlords are just banging down the doors of these homeless shelters looking to take these people in, right? Mm-hmm. So you people listening, you're the few, the chosen to solve this problem. You have all these protections. Now, just imagine the news story of, you know, like the gentleman I was talking about in Massachusetts. Well, imagine the news story. Hey, Young entrepreneur starts affordable housing. He's helping 10 people get off the street and he's shut down over a $200, you know, code compliance ticket. That's not a good news story for the uh, local jurisdiction. So that's just my opinion. <laughs> you know, that's what I would do. That's what Andy would do if it, if we were to ever get to that. Contact the local news. It's a massive problem that, that you guys are looking to solve, that the government gets a ton of money to help solve that they're not doing. And then, you know, randomly they're kind of harassing people that are actually solving the problem. So in my opinion that, you know, that's why I kind of go so hard about this. (laughs) Um, So we've talked about kind of the protections, like, you know, what, what are, what are some instances where a group home, you know, practicing our business model or even, even like a licensed facility, but let's stick to ours. You know, what's something that, they could get somebody shut down for a good reason. Yeah, I mean, first of all, you, you definitely want to make sure that that the place is clean, right? You do, you, you do not want to be a slumlord because, again, you can find yourself on the other side of a fair housing complaint. It doesn't just work for you. It also works for the people that you serve. So you definitely have to think about that. The other thing, too, and one of the things I like about the business model that you suggest Owners can get in trouble if they are the rep payee for these people and they are mishandling funds. And so I think that, you know, to to keep it clean, if you can avoid that just because, you know, there could be an accusation of mishandling funds. So that's that's another area that I think that uh, they definitely want to look at. The other thing, too, is advertising as you're advertising. You want to make sure that you're honest about what you're offering. Because you don't want to mislead, but you also want to make sure that you're also honest, especially for those of you or for those of you that are renting, you want to make sure that you're honest with the landlord that you're going to be renting from about exactly what it is that you are going to be doing. Also on the insurance side, you want to make sure that what you tell them that you're doing and that you're doing is also reflected in your insurance policy. Oftentimes people don't read it. They just trust that the insurance agent gave them 
what they needed. And so, you know, these are also things, you know, that could be potential problems down the road. But as long as you're running, you know, a good, safe operation, you know, as long as you don't have too many people there, you should actually be fine. If there is, you know, illegal activity, you know, of course, you could definitely be shut down, especially if part of the reason why that was allowed to happen is because of some type of landlord neglect, because that's usually what we see. We've had people come to us that we didn't represent that, you know, they had landlord neglect. So it wasn't anything we were going to even work with them on. But as far as people that are following the rules, they typically are fine. I mean, they should typically be fine, but just also be ready to assert your right as a business owner and your right, you know, as a citizen to operate within the rules of the Fair Housing Act without someone now coming in trying to shut you down. Boom. This is the stuff we tell people all the time. It's just good. (laughs) I love hearing it from an expert. (laughs) So I guess about the payee, just for, for folks who maybe have not come across that in the gold course yet, or they're not, they're not members. A payee is someone that's designated for like a, a social security recipient for the funds to go to them. And then they're technically responsible to manage those funds. So obviously there could be someone nefarious getting those funds you know, paying their, their housing fee and then taking the rest and, you know, spending it on a watch or something like that. That'll get you shut down as it should. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so here's kind of another thing that, that holds some people back. They'll see like a scary, you know, news story in their area of a unlicensed home. It's the news story does not look good. And they think that that city or where they're from is going to crack down on group homes altogether and require everybody to get a license or a certificate or something like that. If you guys plug in like a new search, just look up unlicensed group homes, you'll see a number of horror stories. But it's people that are doing exactly what Latanya just said not to do. <laughs> you'll, you'll see awful pictures of slumlords, people taking advantage of their tenants or you know, just letting their tenants kind of, you know, run wild, sell drugs, prostitution rings, not keeping their property up to code, keeping it really dirty. These are all things that, you know, Latanya is not even going to represent you if you do anything like that and you will get shut down. So are there any other legal issues that, that I haven't thought of or any common things that, that you see relating to this business? Not outside of some of the things that we've talked about. No. Okay. Perfect. So, you know, you came to us because you wanted to start a group home. (laughs) So we've got your background. We know what you were doing before this. What made you want to get into group homes? Well, I already have a small real estate investment portfolio with my family. And when I was looking at like, what would be the best business model for me as far as a buy hold? because that was where I wanted to, you know, really put my dollars. And I really stumbled across this, someone else who I know, my actually my best friend's cousin, she is looking at doing something and she started talking to me about it. And I said, oh, you know, tell me more. And so she directed me to the podcast that now I'm on. <laughs> and that's really how, and so I listened to the podcast And I I liked what I heard. 
it made sense was something I never really thought about just because even, you know, for me, it was just something that I didn't think about as far as from a business model standpoint for myself. But then once I, I said, okay, you know, I'm going to invest. And then when I invested in and went through the course, I said, you know, this may be something good for me just because, you know, the startup costs, they're not as much when you think about the return and you think about the fact that, you know, building good relationships, now you don't have as much of a struggle with your vacancies and, you know, things like that, that you would have in a, in a traditional buy hold. I just, you know, for me, it just, it just definitely made sense as a next phase investment. What are some of the advantages that you saw compared to like the typical real estate model that you practice in with your fam? Oh, well, the first thing is, you know, all of your money coming from one tenant. That's the first thing. That's the major thing, to be honest with you. I think there's a misconception out there. I know that there's a misconception out there among the owners that say, I don't want to rent to a group home. Because the biggest thing is, you know, I don't want anyone to tear up my house. And we have had families tear up our houses, <laughs> right? The, re- the rental houses. The, the rental houses. Again, I think that sometimes it's, it's perspective. But for me, that definitely, because here's the thing, I think in a group home environment, not to really sound manipulative, but there are people there that will police each other. I think that you can... Again, I'm getting ready to open my first one, but I think that you can create an environment, a good environment of mutual accountability. So if, you know, you live here, this is your home, take pride in your home. Don't allow roommate to jeopardize everybody's home. And quite frankly, I think that these folks have a lot more to lose than the average family that's just going from place to place, renting and tearing it up as they go. Well, what Andy does, and this just just additional control, is he he'll designate one of the more trustworthy tenants to actually take on that role officially as the house supervisor. Mm-hmm. So it'd be like you know, I tell people who are kind of debating with rental properties, with your rental properties, can you have someone like a team member in the spare bedroom watching over your tenants, making sure that they clean the property up every day? Of course not. <laughs> right. Um, not to be profitable. Yeah. <laughs> well, you won't be, you know, the, the people that will sign up for that are probably going to be questionable to begin with. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> and then with our tenant agreement included in the, in the gold course, and, you know, you could probably draft something up yourself, but it's just basically, it gives you the, it's similar to a hotel, right? Like if, mm-hmm. if one of the, if one of your group home tenants do, you know, break the rules or cause problems or something like that, you don't have to go through the eviction process, just like a hotel, ask them to leave. So it's just a lot of the folks that I speak with are kind of from a medical background, you know, ner- mm-hmm. nursing students or nurses, or they're working in group homes. They don't have a lot of business experience. They don't have real estate experience and they haven't thought about this stuff. So that's why I was, I try to really instill in them, you know, and you, you see this as someone in real estate, right? You see the advantages and it's pretty glaring once you do a little bit of research and figure out the main points. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, and it's like with anything, if you're going to do it as a business, you, you need to understand the business of it. Anyone can acquire a property. If you just want to go buy a property, like you could do that if you qualify. 
or you may be able to find someone that will rent you their home. But that still doesn't mean that you're going to be profitable. You still have to understand the business of this and just understand that just like with business, you know, you, you know, there's some trial and error. And I think that in my case, I've learned a lot from the other side and, you know, with the things that, that we do. And there's some things on the residential side that are just ugly that, you know, I don't want to personally be bothered with, which is why for me, this makes a lot more sense. Beautiful. So you're just getting started out with the group home stuff. What are your goals? Where do you see yourself in like in another you know year or two with the group home thing? I see having 10 in the next two years. Very doable. Have you listened to a couple of the podcasts? I have. <laughs> yeah. So that's, I'd say that's, that's a very realistic goal. You know, we see people that will do, you know, three to five in that first year. And then from there, it's it's just about scaling. So I look forward to seeing that. And we definitely have to have Jan as a part two, just talking about the group home stuff, because I'm excited to see what you can do. <laughs> and then- Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm excited about it. Again, just figuring out, it's, it's a little bit different because you have to figure out what demographic you're going to serve. There's just some, some different research things that, you know, I had to do you know, as I've been preparing to do this. So I I think we're pretty solid. Yeah. And you did that before you bought a a house for this, right? So it's not like you have a, an empty vacant house. Right. Any money. Right. right? So I tell people, Hey, hey, you know, like the first step that a lot of people have to figure out just what, what we talked about here. There's so many people that just don't realize that you can, you know, you, you don't have to get a license. You don't have to go through like the, I've talked to people that have spent years trying to start a licensed facility and lost some people up to, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars. So the first thing, just understand the laws that are on your side and protect you that allow you to just start. Like we tell people (laughs) that that's one and then understand your marketing in place, find out your referral sources get your systems in place. Like a lot of people listening, we just kind of glazed over the rep payee. That's a huge part of it. Understand this stuff. And then it's about, you know, going to maybe negotiate with landlords like Latanya is doing, or if you're qualified, if you have the capital, just purchasing the property. So that's kind of the game plan. There's a lot more to it, obviously, but (laughs) just for the folks listening out there. So I'm wondering, you know, I'm I'm sure for the folks listening out there, they have a ton of questions. If so, you know, drop me some feedback. Maybe we can have you on and maybe do like a live Q&A or something like that, LaTanya, if people have a lot more like legal questions that I forgot to ask. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Just just let me know. I'd love to do it. Cool. And then if folks want to reach out to you or or learn more about you, where, where can they find you? Sure. So they can actually go to my website. Now it's my legal website, but you'll be able to uh, find out more about that. It's iprotectyourbrand.com. And from there, they can connect with me on all social media outlets. Cool. And if you want to uh, shoot me an email and I'll drop all that stuff in the description so they could just go to it real quick. Okay. And for the folks, you know, let's say worst case, there is someone out there, you know, getting harassed by code compliance or something like that. Can they reach out to you? Yes, absolutely. Please reach out to me immediately. And the one thing I want to say is don't be scared off by what you think something may cost 
we actually do provide some support for people that want to self-advocate. And so, you know, we're not representing you or, or anything like that, but we do provide some support for some things that you can do kind of up to that point of absolutely having to have representation. So just make sure that you reach out so that we can talk about what your options are. Yeah. And if you're a gold course member, hop in the important document section, check out the fair housing and legal section. You know, there may be costs to fight stuff like this for folks like Latanya, right? But at the end of the day, if your rights have been violated, there's a history of, you know, very large paydays when that's happened to people like that. So it's worth the fight. And plus, I think the service is worth fighting for, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. Housing is, is not going anywhere. And the affordable housing is going somewhere. It's going to go in way more demand. <laughs> so. <Right>. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, LaTanya, thank you so much for coming on. Are there any parting words for the folks out there? No, no, just do it. Just just pull the trigger. That's all I would say. Just do it. Don't keep doing the analysis paralysis. Just get it done. Beautiful. I couldn't say it better. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on, LaTanya, and I, I look forward to uh, working with you and speaking with you in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, have a great day.